You know, I, I said all along that uh, I, had, I would not object to Bob going up to testify, but after I said that, uh, he indicated he was not interested in testifying, and he held a press conference and issued a press statement making it clear that uh, his testimony really was the report itself, and he wasn't going to go beyond the report. So I was disappointed to see him subpoenaed because I don't think that serves any purpose dragging uh, Bob Mueller up if he, in fact, is going to stick to the report. There appears to be compelling evidence of the president's misconduct outside of the four corners of the redacted version of the Mueller report, and we will work to uncover that evidence as well. Volume two of this report was not authorized under the law to be written. It was written to a legal standard that does not exist at the Justice Department. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So we all have our favorite hearings of Trump times. There are Comey Day people, Bill Browder Day people, Mueller people. And I learned so much from all those hearings, too. And I commend them to you. I think you should watch them or watch them again if you can. But I think my favorite hearing, just for this sort of moral dynamism, was Michael Cohen's hearing. The one where he described the career he was in the process of renouncing on his way to prison. The way he gave his job description was amazing. What he said he did for a living was lying for Mr. Trump. So many people have this as a job. Sarah Sanders lies for Mr. Trump. Hope Hicks lies for Mr. Trump. Alan Dershowitz and Bill Barr and Mark Meadows and Mitch McConnell. Lying for Mr. Trump is a growth sector. And when Trump said he'd create jobs, he has definitely made careers of lying for Mr. Trump enterprises for dozens of people. Alas, he doesn't pay them or it might help his flagging numbers. Anyway, the other thing that came from that Cohen hearing is Michael Cohen's testimony that as he perceived Trump, whom he'd worked for for decades, uh, basically as a full-on Smithers to Trump's Mr. Burns, is that Trump is a racist. There was, of course, never a doubt about Trump's racism, even his exterminationist racism. But I'll also refer you to Paul Krugman's column in the New York Times that credits William Julius Wilson, the sociologist, with getting everything right and giving the most useful context for Trump's white supremacy. Basically, Wilson noticed in the last few decades that while weird racists were arguing that something about being non-white predisposed people toward antisocial behavior, what was really going on in the 70s and 80s, was the job opportunities were declining or flat for urban workers. Well, guess what? Even as Trump conjures a fictional inner city to make his racist point, the social state of urban America is actually vastly better than it was. Crime is in decline. Employment is up. On the other hand, as Krugman notes, the social state of rural America, that's white rural America, is deteriorating. What he says is, to the extent that there really is such a thing as American carnage, remember that phrase, it's concentrated among less educated whites in rural areas who are suffering a surge in deaths of despair, diseases of despair. This is suicide, alcohol, other kinds of addictions that have pushed their mortality rates above those of black Americans. So, look, this is what happened. It's not that people in rural Kentucky are racially inferior. It's just that when there's no work people experience what they did in cities in the 70s and 80s, a decline in the propensity to work, the end of stable families, and so on. Social stability in the so-called eastern heartland in red states like Mitch McConnell's Kentucky, one of the poorest states in the union, 
is essentially in shambles. So once more, we have projection from Trump. He talks about crime and violence and disorder and eye roll racism in Baltimore. In fact, he should look to his ralliers and the white supremacist terrorists who are basically holding the rest of the hardworking nation hostage with their loud online lies, their ravenous hunger to see blood at the border, and their actual guns. My guest today to talk about order and disorder, truth and lies, laws and lawlessness is Harry Littman. He's a Washington Post columnist, a former U.S. attorney, DOJ official. He teaches constitutional law at UCSD and UCLA, and he practices law. He's also the executive producer and host of the podcast, yes, podcast, Talking Feds. Harry, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thank you. Good to be here. It's so so good to talk to you again. I don't know if you saw this, but Vladimir Karamorza Sr. died last night. He was instrumental in the Magnitsky Act. Yes. His son, Vladimir Karamorza Jr., it's very confusing because they were both dissidents in Russia and journalists. But the son, whom I've gotten to meet a couple of times, was poisoned not once but twice. And now in Russia, the head of the opposition party, Navalny, was also seemingly poisoned. So the history of dissident writers and journalists in the Soviet Union and now Russia, this is a long wind-up to saying, I drew out uh, Karamorza Jr.'s speech he gave recently getting a Civil Courage Prize. I saw him take this award last year. And he quoted Solzhenitsyn saying, "'Live not by lies.'" And he said, the key to our liberation lies in personal non-participation in lies. I at least won't be a handmaiden to lies. And he goes through, you know, all the lies of Soviet times and all the lies of now about Putin especially always claims it's a free and fair election and that he won by 70 percent. We also have a president and a party that is continues to claim that our elections are free and fair when they're patently not. When the last one was hacked, Mueller says this one's being hacked. And as I say, a long wind up to saying, I do think podcasting of the kind you do on Talking Feds, we try to do here, try to represent personal non-participation in lies. You know, trying to at least slowly but surely, Solzhenitsyn says, you know, starve the lies, cut short their existence, either refuting them or just simply refusing them. And the language of the law, the language you're trained in and that, that your guests are trained in, it's you're very patient but you just slowly but surely are dismantling the lies that Barr told about the Mueller report, the lies that Trump tells about the report, and the lies the Republicans in the Senate tell. I mean, I don't know if you feel like that's what you're doing, but that's what it seems to me you're doing. We could talk about this for so many hours. So Mueller testifies last week, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, our, the spokesperson for our government, gets up and gives a four-sentence recitation every single sentence is a, you know, Orwellian rank lie. And you you start to try to, to say, how do we differ now, you know, morally and ethically with these other countries? I just read a really good uh, book on Nabokov and Solzhenitsyn, oh, and it does yeah. play through what, you know, what essentially it makes an argument for Nabokov's having been as engaged as Solzhenitsyn. That's ah. beside the point. But it's very much this you know, just sense of personal integrity and truth. And when one begins to catalog the political sins of the administration, by, we, are, we have become so bludgeoned and fatigued about what in some ways is the, it's not criminal, that's their big defense, maybe not even impeachable. 
But the guy lies, you know, he wakes up lying and mm-hmm. lies all day. He's the leader of the free world. He's the president of the United States. I remember when Clinton told a Clintonian lie, a hair-splitting lie, mm-hmm. and the country went berserk. This guy wakes up lying and lies every day. And the and that we somehow have become inured to that and put that whole mo- growing mountain of lies mm-hmm. aside when we think about our government, that can't register somehow on either the, because it doesn't register on either the criminal or the clear impeachment scales, it's somehow just countenanced or we don't have even time to talk about it. But that's the government we've stumbled into. And by the way, the governments that we just assume one can never credit, they're our buddies now. They're, we're, you know, we're in league with yes. them. The hell happened yeah. for this to- in this topsy turvy world. As a lawyer, you put it very well. The sort of patience idea, because one waits for things to go to the court, where a duty of candor so clearly applies. And if you tell a little lie mm-hmm. to the court, you're going to get slapped around something fierce. Truth is a value that that really prevails. So you wait and you wait and you wait, and then you go to court and see if if lies will. Happen. One of the reasons why, you know, people were so hungry, including me, for us, to, for subpoenas to be served or for Mueller to take it farther, because mm-hmm. we know then the crucible of the truth and the court system then will be served. And it hasn't the you know, that's that's in some ways the biggest and most upsetting concomitant of of Mueller's having stopped short in certain respects. Never. Yeah. Will there be an occasion where where, you know, possibly really wrongdoers are are put to their you know responsibility of telling the truth under some penalties? Because without that, they don't care to the American people. And we're you know, we'll just be talking about historians and conjectures and the ability of Trump to unabashedly and his apologists. Right. You know, Ratcliffe, his attacks on Mueller last week, those are lies. And his lies about his own experience doing counterterrorism prosecution. Probably. I'm looking into that, but at best it's spun up like a top spinning off a table. You just said something interesting. So you said probably. So good point. We don't know for sure, although, you know. All signs point to, and if I were using some kind of uh, dinner party standard, I would say he's probably lying about his experience with as a counterterrorism prosecutor, putting terrorists behind bars, as he claimed. But, right, we are accustomed to this, like, like painstaking search for the truth, that a conversation you, you, know, you might have or debate you might have with Bill Clinton would be, as you said, hair-splitting. And now you have, some people say, like, World Wrestling Federation-style lies, you know? Yeah, truth is zero value. I mean, I wrote about Mueller. He insisted on Marquis of Queensberry rules against the World yes. Wrestling Federation. Yes. But just to return, I try yeah. really hard, by the way, Virginia, on the podcast, in the in the paper. I don't have a dinner party mode. You know, if I think it's I, I really do try to just say it. But that means giving the devil his due, as it were. And it may turn out every office has a terrorism coordinator. Mm. There were zero count them zero terrorism prosecutions filed in Eastern District of Texas when he Mm -hmm. was, and I regard him with great suspicion because of the absolute vicious lies he told during the hearing. But I think it may well turn out, you know, a lot of things can get that bureaucratic tea 
uh, that turn out to be immigration cases or or whatever. I but think why why give him the benefit of the doubt? And this is a broader question. Jacob Weisberg, the creator of Trumpcast, used to say we need to start covering this administration as the man bites dog story. Here is when yes. they tell the truth. So, for instance, the conversation yesterday, Jim Jordan said he thought that Trump was a great hero during 9-11. You know, I was in New York then, and it was very difficult for journalists and do-gooders to get to the site. We've seen pictures of Hillary Clinton and and Giuliani and so forth. But when he said he got to the site, we all kind of know that, you know, where he was and what he was doing. And we've all plowed over this territory before. But because Jim Jordan, also who lies in these hearings flamboyantly, because Jim Jordan said it, we went scrambling to try to figure out if it was true. Of course, it's not true. Of course, he didn't rush into the trouble to try to save people and risk his life. It just it just doesn't pass common sense. And sometimes I think you know, on those of us who dotted I's and cross T's in our education stand on ceremony so much. We keep thinking, oh, there's got to be a grain of truth in this Ratliff thing or, you know, um, well, maybe Donald Trump did go. I don't want to be hasty. But, you know, I've started to think we're we're not, you know, we're not on this podcast, not in the courtroom. And I'm going to say that doesn't pass the smell test. And most of these things don't pass the smell test. And even if you generously discovered that this guy had done these prosecutions, that there was some other part of his operation that was prosecuting counterterrorism. It doesn't seem like worth figuring that out for Ratcliffe. I mean, certainly as I grew up, you know, from my mommy learning about lies, there are are even a a whole nother you know, fifty uh, percent moral lies and and you know dis and instances of disingenuousness. So why don't you yeah. cover like Jacob says? I mean, that is to my I, I the, our our antenna go off like crazy, but we understand that we're at least trying to be within the public uh, debate. And and if there are opportunities, you know, whom are we all speaking to? To go mm-hmm. back to your previous question, yeah. is it two percent? of the Trump base to try to dislodge? Is it women who were in the Trump base who might now understand? Is it the 1% of undecided folks? But, you know, you know you're going to have, you know, lying jackanapes on the other mm-hmm. side. So you the, the reason to do it that way in a broader political sense, journalistic, you're right. It doesn't portray, to call these things truths are, you know, is just not true to a, to a journalistic um, kind of ethos. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to lead with your chin. And there are, of course, so many instances of flat out, you know, Orwellian 180 degree lies. So you think yeah. that they might have some persuasive value. Of course, they seem not to either. But I mean, that's at least the pragmatic answer to the Jacob question. But yeah. the you know, the notion that that it is what I mean when I say he wakes up lying and lies yeah. all day, I, I assume 20 percent of it, it wouldn't count as perjury in a court. But the, mm-hmm. the question is how to portray this terrible fact that we seem to be like two thirds of the way to Turkey or something, you know, that I mean, yeah. no, that's have right. dishonest president. You know, to me, the, the, at the beginning, when I started writing, I was worried about him, but it it seemed like buffoonery and the horrifying fact, you know, of, of, of watching inroads and deeper inroads and deeper inroads get made. And now, 
you know, the possibility that in, in you know, however you want to um, define this, he gets away with it. I, you know, I really was sort of Boy Scouty and just didn't think that could happen, just didn't know when it when it would. And that he does lasting, really lasting damage to democratic institutions, mm-hmm. that this mm-hmm. guy himself personally irredeemable but actually a you know a virus on the body politic mm-hmm. how did this happen but that's trying to think seriously about that kind of world and how to beat it back and what it looks like after he leaves is what leads you to try to call out the crystalline versions or examples of you know perfect and perfectly material lies. We also do it without sounding too grandiose for the same reason that, you know, Solzhenitsyn and Kara Morza do it, which is to at least not be a handmaiden, <laughs> to at least not help the lies along. And just for our own well-being, for our own consciences. You know, one thing he says is there's something selfish in it, too, because we want to be able to sleep at night. I am often absolutely possessed of the conviction that at least the worst of them on Fox News and in Congress and, you know, Devin Nunes and Ratcliffe and, right. and and Sean Hannity know to a moral certainty that he's lying all the time. You know, it sounds pious, but really, how do you sleep nights? It feels, or Mitch McConnell, it feels so deeply corroded morally. And we don't live in a place where you and I have to worry about our podcasts, mm-hmm. but we do live in a place, and arguably Solzhenitsyn and those, you know, didn't starting from around the 70s, but we mm-hmm. do live in a place where, you know, we, there are ways to be um, complicit. And, you know, even in, a, in whatever you think about, uh, you know, divine retribution, it feels crappy to be investing in a in, in something that you know is is false and treating yeah. American people with contempt. I mean, there is a basic part of the Trump project that really does seem to me to be treating his base with contempt, calling out their worst angels and and lying to them about what he provides. But I just mean the straight out factual, you know, it's yeah. night when it's day. It, it, it does. Personally, I would feel like crap if I were working for that kind of you know, that administration. You know, I'd worked with Bill Barr, who was an, an honest, straight up guy, and I knew him to be a, a, a rock rib consultant conservative. Mm-hmm. As you say, there's no getting around when he came out and characterized the Mueller report that it was, you know, that was that assessment. Mm-hmm. Just stand up. He had to know it. And, you know, a two bill. It, I mean, absolutely. Why does everyone who comes into this guy's orbit get ruined, whether it's whether you're people of strength or not? And maybe there are different hypotheses. The best that it seems that the ones that have strong moral fiber can do is retire. So, I mean, Rex Tillerson or, you know, Kelly, exercise that 25th Amendment or just do something that puts a stake in the ground while you're there. So let me ask you, so what do you think about this? Because when they leave, now we find out, you know, a minute after Kelly's gone, Uh, we know that there's, on top of everything else, not just a dishonest guy, but a madman, right? A total guy who doesn't know the first thing about anything has the codes. Yes. But um, what's it going you know, in five years, will these Cretans be crawling out and saying, oh, I was really against him all the while and I knew how bad he was? Right. The Paul Ryan phenomenon. The vast apparatus in the Republican Party say, 
yes, we really need to have a lot of work to do to rebuild our democratic institutions. You know, screw you for yeah. helping at the time. But how do you think it's going to look in, in history's lens? Okay, you were talking about people's immortal souls or the secular version of that, how, the, how they'll sort of answer to truth or feel about truth on their deathbeds. And there are three people who've sort of made it clear that this is a genuine concern for them. One is Michael Cohen and his testimony that I thought was extremely interesting the second time he testified when he had that moment, and this is in the news now, but he had that moment with Elijah Cummings, I'm sure you remember, um, having said, you know, the first way that he broke with Donald Trump is on the grounds that he's a racist. And, you know, Michael Cohen is as complicit as he can be with the organization, with the campaign, with the, you know, finance chair of the Republican National Committee. So he's his switch is absolute and it was very difficult and he's in jail for it. Anyway, racist. So he said, you know, he was from this Holocaust surviving family and how would he ever make it up to them that he had backed a racist? And Mark Meadows had a little showdown. I don't want to get distracted, Mm. but this is back in the news because Mark Meadows is trying to tell us that both Trump and Elijah Cummings are not racists as if Elijah Cummings needed that (laughs) call to him. Um, And uh, anyway, so he had a little showdown with Meadows. And then um, finally at the end, you know, Elijah Cummings was meant to give the get the last word and he had already absolved Meadows of his racism because he's father confessor Elijah Cummings he's right, you know, right please right. forgive me <laughs> and and then he told Michael Cohen and I'm feeling sentimental because I've just been thinking about Carl Morrison but he told him you know maybe this didn't happen to you it happened for you and maybe you will learn something from this and I think Cohen's eyes almost filled with tears. You know, he's paying, if not quite the last full measure of devotion, you know, several years in jail for, as he calls it, lion for Mr. Trump. And he is having a reckoning. And yeah. that was very interesting. Although the people above him, which was the whole reason for his reckoning, are not. No, I know. And clearly, I mean, he might spend his whole time nursing his wounds and planning revenge against the others that didn't suffer or Trump. Then, though, Rudolph Giuliani in The New Yorker said, you know, is it going to be on his tombstone? I lied for Mr. Trump. I lied for Trump. Um, he's worried too. And, uh, and then I should say Felix Sater, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> figure. This, this is the most color I've been waiting for his efflorescence to just break all over for a week. It hasn't quite happened. But yes. what about Giuliani? Now I'm wigging out a little and getting, uh, extravagant, but he, I Please. mean, the, the, the whole group look like sort of, you know, Egan Sheila, fantasy, ecla, corrupt paint, you know, <laughs> with sharp teeth and nasty. I mean, it looks like a kind of uh, portrait of of a secular uh, hell. Yes. Egan Sheila. I hope I hope listeners caught that. That is the first time we've gotten that mentioned on the show and fantastic. I mean, I'm really glad. It's funny because, you know, the weeks march on. And you have these either stories or crises do some, some men of is Ratcliffe lying? Uh, the you know now the what's Nadler's petition going to add to? But we don't take much time except I guess in you know in dining rooms and bars to like take three steps back and like what the fuck is happening? You know? Yeah, I think lots of us have on our minds the the long Connie Brook profile of Alan Dershowitz this week. Yeah. So you're a prosecutor, but what yeah. what what has emerged in this time to me is the the enormous number of people who, as Michael Cohen says, 
you know, lie for Mr. Trump. So they lie for other people. <laughs> That's their job, right? You know, and Giuliani lies for Mr. Trump and, and Alan Dershowitz lies for Mr. Trump. How do you, let's say when lawyers go down different paths, so you're in law school, and when you go to defense, criminal defense, like a Cohen or ultimately a Giuliani started as a prosecutor and now I don't know what he does, TV lawyer, yeah. you start wanting to do the fireworks on television and the sort of, I don't know, defense of civil liberties or the fundamentalism about civil liberties that just tilts into libertinism and decadence. I mean, it's really crazy now, you know, to see Alan Dershowitz saying that a 15-year-old girl should, that's not considered rape, however old the the guy is, that could be consensual or isn't at least de facto or de jure rape. So I guess my point is, where did all these people come from? People that would huddle around Epstein or O.J. Simpson, people who just would lie to the end for other people or accountants that fudge stuff, or all these figures, these enablers that enable, you know, the illegitimate part of our culture and our our government and our financial system. I just, I've been astounded to see how many people have been making their livings lying for other people. Yeah. Well, where'd they come from? The flame was there in the uh, in the president of the United States is inherently has flame and they are moths to yeah. it and and I think that's the explanation for Dershowitz I mean I'm very strongly of the view you know that that uh, lawyers we, we should not impugn lawyers for whom they choose to represent or what or what arguments they make sort of in you know in general nevertheless and also I'll say that that Dershowitz has has almost had this you know, psychological proclivity for for representing unpopular and if you think about it sexual in some way i remember he made his name with with pornography yeah. uh, def- i find that completely unexceptionable etc but dershowitz though i've really had a very strong dispute going i've debated him several times now and and, mm-hmm. and he's taken truly bankrupt ridiculous legal positions that only one other person as far as i know has even advanced he's come up in this podcast so far it is <laughs> rudy giuliani who yes. will flip in anything and so dershowitz's views for a sort of eminent although he's not a constitutional lawyer have been ridiculous and at least one explanation for them have been the you know the desire to be to to have a new oj and be close to power obviously he's got he's having a He's a psychologically complex um, uh, f- uh, fellow. I don't want to, you know, I did the, I've heard his defense of the uh, of the charges that the model made, and I think it would be very unfair to convict him of those without more. But my brief with him is all about his really bankrupt intellectual, you know, pro-Trump positions. And how does he come to take them? I It's hard to believe be- that they're a good faith assessment of the merits. So now we have, again, you know, part 6A of the phenomenon of people being corrupt when they get around Donald Trump, sometimes because he's president, sometimes, you know, because of the force of his personality. There are different versions of it. But, man, as you say, it's a long, long line of willing victims. I mean, these that these guys, will be, you know, Bill Barr made, you know, well, I don't have this. <laughs> it was kind of funny. almost. I don't have this Homeric view where I care what people say about me after I'm dead, hmm. you know, but they, this is what they are going to say about him after he's dead. This formerly universally respected guy yeah, that he, yeah. that he was, he was just a political doormat 
for as the Attorney General of the United States for for President Trump. Who would have thought that he would have been indifferent to that? Back to defense lawyers who still puzzle me. I didn't go to law school, but I was enchanted, I think, like a lot of young people with Clarence Darrow's book, Attorney for the Damned. And it did seem in the sort of heyday of, well, a kind of scopes type or sort of progressive, underrepresented, seemingly sort of morally compromised in a Christian idiom in a conservative world by the moral majority of figure like Scopes. You just thought, oh, I would be able to defend him and yes. humiliate some parochial, superstitious William Jennings Bryan. And yes. I can imagine, you know, someone like Dershowitz coming up with that same idea of romance. But to call him the devil's advocate is not quite right, or to say he's attorney for the damned. I mean, you know, he likes to take these unpopular clients. But so everybody wanted to work for OJ, get part of the OJ gravy train. Everybody, you know, even surprising, as you say, Bill Barr seems willing to be a pit bull or lie for Mr. Trump. We've seen plenty of McGahn and so forth, like willing to get their reputation in tatters for him. But in any case, it's not as though they're just scoundrels or they're noble people whom no one will defend. I mean, how defense attorneys and Dahlia Lithwick has said this, too turned into not just defending the accused, but actively looking for loopholes. Dershowitz has this thing about if you can get an abortion, then sex with you is not rape. And that's what he's now saying about 15-year-old girls. It's almost as though he's like scouting territory in the law for criminals. (laughs) You know, where can we find, as they say in business, white space, you know, to exploit for you? And what? how does that happen? Because you were idealistic. You must have been drawn a little bit to the Clarence Darrow figure. In fact, I used to think prosecutors were the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually true. That was the mindset I had when I went to law school. And this is probably not going to be a good topic to um, to close on. Let's get to it. <laughs> I'm glad you said too, because I'm basically, how did it, ha- I, 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 I see the idealism in that, look, you, you know, taking on a reviled client. Now, now I do think Dershowitz gets, has over, um, gets overstory about the romance of this. And, you know, it, there's a vanity there and it's the same kind of vanity that just wants him in the action, which is my right. best guess about why he does it. But he's doing a crappy job when you make crappy arguments like that. But the sense of taking on a reviled, the most reviled client and making the most tenuous, but, you know, the law is that which is plausibly asserted and boldly maintained. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, argument... I find completely consistent with the idealism in the in the law. So I'm mm. I have no misgivings that way. It's just the arguments. You're a hey, two things about Dershowitz. That's a really crappy argument that will subject his client to complete contempt, as it should. And two, yeah, there is something a little weird going on with Dershowitz that all his swashbuckling adventures seem to involve, especially you know, sexually despicable people. But, you know, I don't see it as an instance of corruption that's Mm. when somebody becomes, you know, uh, focuses their practice on reviled defendants. On the other hand, it doesn't make the defendant any more um, uh, noble. And as I say, I see special problems with Dershowitz. Um, You know, when you talk, someone talks about defending the despised and the reviled, that brings to mind a kind of Jesus-y vision of, uh, you know, I stand with the lepers and the prostitutes and the, you know. And the Clarence Darrow, I mean, and the the Scopes. 
you know, that, he was, that's true. And but he also defended, you know, the the Loeb and Leopold. So what? he he what? didn't Darrow defend Loeb and Leopold? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I, so I, in well, other words, based, I believe so. But those that's that's certainly an example of what we're what we're uh, talking about. But those Not, are yeah. maybe closer to yeah. He did. Um, those are maybe closer to someone who would have been Dershowitz's clients, rich rich boys who wanted to be kind of above the law. So Darrow yes, well, wasn't just happens. he wasn't just with the lepers. But I guess also it, it's he's cut, Dershowitz has come pretty far. Not just anyway from lepers. He's, he's, become, he's hardly doing that. He's become ridiculous as a lawyer. Um, that's bad, yes. but you know, they, they, but it's not simply because he defends reviled uh, people. Okay, I like that because I just want to push this and keep talking about religion. I'll also say <laughs> I do think there's a little bit with him reading this profile. Hadn't realized quite how orthodox he'd grown up. You know, one right. of the few to eat kosher at, in law school and so on. It seems sometimes like he's putting an arrow, one of those little wires around the communities of these very rich men where oh, they're allowed to break the law in this <laughs> Specific place that he, that Dershowitz has cut out for them, like he, like like eating pork at a Chinese restaurant. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you have the Chinese restaurant exception. All right, sure. last question, and just go to town on this. I have found, you know, periodically, one you sort of hate one figure in the Trump orbit more than others, and I tossed and turned over Manafort for two yeah. years, I think. But now it's Barr. I just that guy. I can't, as you say, I can't fathom how he changed. But I didn't know him before. But how, not even worrying about his obituary, anything, how did he bring himself, to use the word collusion in that press conference, to misrepresent the work of Bob Mueller so much that it was like a desecration? Now that we know that Mueller is not the totally robust thinker he once was, like most of us, he will, in his 70s, he's seeing some, some decline. It just seems even more surprising that Barr would run, run roughshod over the results of, you know, a, a very carefully rendered, if imperfect, document and, um, and do everything he could to fit it into a Trump tweet. I mean, what the hell? Yeah. This is a matter, a question of some, uh, you know, honest pain uh, for me. Let me just say my, you know, uh, circle of hell, public enemy number two or even one is yeah. is not he but Mitch McConnell. But but it's a totally fair question on uh, Barr because on top of everything else, I am here to tell you I worked with him. Strong, stand up, smart, um, funny. Yep. You know, good guy, and a and a you know, and a sort of you know want want him in the foxhole, which then I guess he's gone into the wrong foxhole. But I've thought deeply about this because for you know, all the reasons you say. So you know, I think of two hypotheses. First, I find no possible defense of my much admired previous boss that it's his own that he thinks he's telling the truth. I find I find that not possible. So he's mm-hmm. lying. And that's a really serious thing to say. Mm-hmm. And I, I have two hypotheses, you know, okay. and it's been a combination. You know, one is he's a partisan. You know, that's what that was my explanation for the ill-advised uh, opinion letter. But it's just, you know, there are people I know, I know, you know, three or four people whom I respect, whose argument for supporting Trump is, oh, my God, yeah, I know he's an incredibly disgusting guy, but I want, you know, Kavanaugh and low taxes and 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 we'll be mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And if you take that to the, you know, ultimate, 
Mm-hmm. It's just like you want to, you know, then then you're you want Republicans to win. That's one. And then there's the the somewhat higher brow version of that, which is, and I know this to be true. He really does believe deeply in executive power. Sees it as the great. Um, advance of the constitutional convention, you know, has kind of devoted his life to it Mm -hmm. intellectually. And we're at a period now where very much because of Trump himself, uh, there's a distinct possibility, as say there was after Watergate, of a real weakening of the institutional power of the executive branch. Those kinds of reforms or an impeachment might have that effect. Mm-hmm. And he sees himself as fighting as a, a broader institutional battle on behalf of the overall you know, power of the uh, executive. But, you know, neither is faintly excusable, it seems. Mm -hmm. I mean, in general, for him and all the actors, we have things playing out on two levels. One, a sort of raw, practical one, Nancy Pelosi. Will it be good for the Democrats to go impeachment? Will it be, uh, how will it be for the the people in, in, you know, the moderates in red districts and those kinds of inquiries? And then there's just the my God, uh, you know, the sort of moral moment that we're at and the I know this is kind of of, uh, you know, fuddy daddy ish or goody goody ish. But, you know, how can you really not take stock of it and, and respond in some way to the, the far deeper challenges and affronts to, you know, democratic institutions. Mm-hmm. So Barr is one who's come up with an answer to that question. One thing I do not think it is, I don't think it he like many other figures has just been uh, cowed by Trump. I, I still mm-hmm. can't believe that. And, and which, of course, in some ways is worse. But I also I've tried hard to think of the argument why it's just a really principled political or intellectual disagreement, and I can't get there. So that is really uh, sobering. Those of us, maybe everyone who has taken sort of an interest in Jeffrey Epstein on the side of this, right. has tracked this weird, you know, it's like we so, for so long followed, or I did Stanley Ann Dunham and, and uh, Barack Obama Sr. and thinking like that is the trajectory yeah. of an American life, right? Like how, right. how fascinating that Hawaii was and then, you know, getting to New York and Harvard and so on. Um, but now we have other lives that we're sort of tracking, other 20th century lives. And Barr's father, Donald Barr, gave Jeffrey Epstein his first break at prestigious Dalton School. And that is this kind of odd, ominous story that leads to Bear Stearns, which of course collapsed in some figure, Ace Greenberg, whose son went to Dalton. The only reason to evoke at least how kind of Byzantine this is, is to point out that there is I'm having to admit to myself a kind of overman class here where, you know, you're Jeffrey Epstein and somehow you're a hustler from Coney Island with no education. And somehow Donald Barr, who's later fired for, you know, being authoritarian essentially at Dalton, falls in love with or decides is some kind of galaxy brain and he needs to hire him. And then Ace Greenberg makes the same decision at Bear Stearns, and he's enabled right and left, and Les- Leslie Wexner and so on. And then I feel like Barr inherits from his father, who converted to Catholicism, I don't know what that was about, but he inherits from his father an idea of a kind of overman, that there are these certain people, 
and Dershowitz, you know, argues this too, essentially, who get to live in a special space. Barr's own work was about, you know, how he needed to be this kind of grueling disciplinarian unless it came to, you know, Libertine Jeffrey Epstein, who, you know, he let do anything he wanted. And then we have Bard kind of making the same case, unitary executive, that we just need these extremely powerful leaders, especially if they are Donald Trump. Yes, but now he's thought it through. I, I, I think you're totally right. Okay. It's a kind of, you know, since we're, I'm being uh, completely pretentious in this whole conversation, but I would call it a kind of a Nietzschean view. Yes, I do. Too. And, I think and that's I, what it know, is. So it's got some intellectual uh, pedigree. But the interesting thing is, look, think about Don McGahn. We, you know, we've, I've, we've always posited there were establishment Republicans mm-hmm. who would sort with Trump temporarily, but understood that Trump was an, you know, an idiot and they yeah. would eventually think about their own future, like McGahn, who would be such a valuable witness because he wouldn't burn his bridges. Yeah. And those guys are a kind of meritocracy. And then, I mean, the thing about Trump and his immediate circle is they really are good fella types, not simply because they're criminals, but also because they, 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 they ain't got the class. People don't respect Trump or never did before mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. president. He doesn't have even the Jeff Epstein traditional achievements. He's, you know, he's he's really considered vulgar and low class, which mm-hmm. you know, he is in that way of looking at it. But 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 somehow part of his triumph, though, it doesn't seem to satisfy him personally. He seems to have an insatiable hunger for it is he has co-opted a fair part of this cohort of professional, you know, establishment in a way, achievement Republicans who do his bidding, even though it they it may well not serve their long-term interests. Yeah. Bill Barr, one of them, I think. And but you know, Bill Barr, son of two professors, mm-hmm. and a you know he's he he's got the you know he's a thoughtful uh, person with an in, with an intellectual worldview, which is much more than you can say. For, you know, most of the rascals around Trump and Trump himself, unless you, you know, it's just brand building. They're going to be a lot of sorting out, you know, what all this means when I, I, I mean, there we we won't have an, a probably a Nuremberg, but we'll have some other way of sorting out. You know, who we hope a, I got to interrupt now because what a flipping shame. The image that has been yes. staying a couple weeks is the last um, frame of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I thought this would always be the worst abomination, but I never thought it would happen. But we are really looking at at not knowing. I know we're both sensitive to how things end, but we have to leave it there. On that dark note, my guest today has been Harry Littman. He's a Washington Post columnist, former U.S. attorney and DOJ official. He also teaches constitutional law at UCSD and UCLA. He also is the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast. Thanks for being here, Harry. Thanks, Virginia. Good talking to you. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Fire up your favorite browser and let us know on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And why stop there? You know what's next. Go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and put your money where your ears are. Become a Slate Plus member. Today's the day. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That's Pokemon's a day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Susanna Samuels. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.